Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time My last show was the 100th episode of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. So to celebrate, I decided to do things a bit differently and invited a few friends, who also happen to be renowned Beatles authors, to pick two songs and tell me what makes them special to them. I've only had a guest on once before, when my daughter Ella, an incredible musician and self-proclaimed Beatles freak, co-hosted episode 71, The Musical Children of the Beatles. I realized immediately that once you begin talking to fellow Beatle fans, especially ones who have written countless books about the group, the discussions can get pretty deep. Therefore, episode 100 ended up being nearly three hours long. So in order to preserve the full conversations with each author, I split what was supposed to be one episode into three. So sit back and enjoy some Beatles-related conversations and the selections of Jude Sutherland Kessler, Aaron Kadovich, and Bruce Spizer on part two of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown 100th episode celebration. Our first guest tonight, Jude Sutherland Kessler, is the author of the remarkable John Lennon series, the only historical narrative on the life of John Lennon, of which four volumes are currently available. She's also been the chair for the past five years of the Beatles Authors and Artists Symposium at the Beatles at the Ridge Festival, and hosted the John Lennon Hour on Beatles-arama for many years, which was the first show I was on to promote my book, I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles. She currently hosts She Said, She Said with Lena Stagg, and is currently writing the fifth volume of the John Lennon series. So great to have you, Jude. Anthony, it is so great to be here with you. I, uh, You did not mention that you were at Beatles at the Ridge, what, two of the years? The first two, yeah, that was a lot of fun. We got to get you back again this next year. We're going to be uh, doing a theme next year on Beatles memorabilia. Oh, cool. And all of the items that people have collected over the years. And I bet you have a great collection. Yeah, that that should be a lot of fun. All right. Mark us on your calendar. I, I will. All right. I'm looking forward to this. We've got two fun songs for people. Yeah. So what were the two that you picked? And what is it about them that makes them stand out? Well, the first one, I know people are going to roll their eyes and say, seriously. But I absolutely love Mr. Moonlight. I'm also a great fan of Shakespeare. And one of the things that, that people will tell you when you study Shakespeare is that Shakespeare was never, ever meant to be read. It's not a closet drama. It's meant to see enacted on the stage. When you see it on the stage, you get it. And that's the thing with Mr. Moonlight. Mr. Moonlight was to be performed live. It was a huge cult song in the early 1960s, late 50s and 1960s in England. Every single band, Merseyside, and bands in London all across the United Kingdom performed Mr. Moonlight. And they competed with each other to see who could do the funniest rendition of the song. (laughs) So if you don't know that, you don't don't understand what's going on when you read in Revolution in the Head in McDonald's says that how much of this is a joke it's hard to say the Beatles by no means being immune to bad taste it's not bad taste it's supposed to be funny so when you hear what he calls the gold LeMay ghastliness of the Hammond organ That was suggested by George Martin to put it over the top for listeners as ultra funny. This is in the same vein as a um, rendition of Young Blood or Three Cool Cats. This is one of the songs that the Beatles performed to make the audience chuckle. You know, it's kind of like their Pyramus and Thisbe. Um, skit right. or their, you know, a lot of the skits that they did at the Beatles Christmas shows, they were trying to amuse. And so they definitely do that. It's a very funny song. But that being said, 
you cannot discount that opening by John Lennon. In fact, our mutual friend, Dr. Kid O'Toole, has said in her book, Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Beatles' Lesser Known Tracks, that John's opening on Mr. Moonlight is one of the top 10 best Beatles sounds of all time. He absolutely shreds it. He does. That that opening, whether you're a fan of the song or not, you cannot deny that that is an amazing vocal, even if just for that first line. That's right. And go ahead and let yourselves laugh because you're supposed to be laughing at the song. If you had been in the audience when the Beatles performed this, you would have been giggling. That's what they wanted you to do. It was never meant to be taken seriously. Right. And you have to think, too, I mean, of everybody knows that the Beatles had a great they all had great senses of humor. And around the time that Drive My Car came out, McCartney in interviews was saying, oh, well, we think the next big thing, you know, might be comedy records. And we've written one that's sort of a comedy record. Speaking of Drive My Car that way, because of the lyrics and the beep beep and, and all of that. So it wasn't be and, and you have to look at like a Yellow Submarine or a, a continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Any of those songs definitely have humor in them. Right, right. They loved getting up and acting and doing the voices and doing a little skit on the stage. Very, very versatile. They could go from a mad rocker to an old-time rock and roll classic to a country and western theme to a skit. And this is one of their skits. And it's enjoyable. It's lighthearted and fun. Right. If you want to hear funny, just listen to the Deca auditions and some of the things they did there. Exactly. That's exactly what they were doing. Cool. Well, that one I'm sure was unexpected for some people. What's the second song you chose? All right. You know, there's this prevalent theory that John Lennon was never autobiographical until he met Bob Dylan in the latter part of August, early part of September of 1964 on the North American tour. And Absolutely, this is untrue. John was autobiographical from day one. In fact, he really reminds me of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. He's always grabbing you by the arm, making you stop and listen to the story of his life. He always wants to tell you about the girl that left him behind, whether it's in If I Fell or the song that I chose, I'll Cry Instead. John always was wounded from the loss of his mother once when he was about five years old and his mother for very complicated reasons decided to let her sister Mimi and Mimi's husband George rear John and and he went to live at 251 Men Love Avenue. He never understood that particularly after he found out that his two half-sisters Jackie and Julia were being reared by his mother and her lover, John Dykins, in One Blomfield Road, he says, well, it's not children that she doesn't like. She's got to. It's just me that she didn't want. And he really can never fill that hole in his heart. Now, when she comes back into his life as a teenager and they become best friends and they hang around together for two and a half glorious years, they're almost inseparable. And then she's taken from him again, but this time through death. He is beside himself with despair and he's angry and he tells you this and I'll cry instead. And he, he says, you know, I'm going to get back basically at the world for this. I'm going to break hearts. I mean, get out there and I'm going to show you what your loving man can do. But I, until then, will cry instead. This song was inspired by an incident that happened at Liverpool College of Art in the fall of 1958, about two months, a month and a half after Julia Lennon's untimely death, she was hit by an off-duty policeman who was drunk, knocked 40 feet in the air and killed instantly. And when she died, John really retreated into a very, very dark world. So he's starting Liverpool College of Art in the fall and he's across the registration room minding his own business, and a girl screams across the registration room filled with students, hey, John Lennon, wasn't that your mother who was killed this summer? He stops, he gains his composure and says, yeah, it was her. And then he walks out of the room. Wow. And he wow. walks out into an alley in Hope Street on the side of the building, leans against the wall, and Thelma Pickles walks out. That's how they meet each other. And she says to John, 
listen, you're better than that girl any day of the week. And they start to talk. But John's really rattled by this incident. Everybody knows he's lost his mother. He feels like it's a public thing. And he writes this song very early at this point about how he's got every reason on earth to be both sad and mad. He vacillates between those two words in the lyrics because he just lost the only girl that he had. If he could get his way, he would just give up but he can't give up. He's got to put one foot in front of the other. So what does he do? He cries instead. Never has there been a more autobiographical song. This is years and years before Dylan. If you even want to take it, the lyrics were finalized in May of 1964. It was recorded on the 1st of June, 1964. Yes, he had heard the Free Will and Bob D Dylan that had come out. They listened to it in January when they were in Paris. He knew about Dylan's autobiographical nature, but what that does is it endorses and backs up John's penchant for writing autobiographical songs, which he's done all along. And it gives him a yes, green light, go ahead to continue writing autobiographically. And this is long before meeting Dylan, one of his most autobiographical songs. It definitely is. And you, and you think something like I Call Your Name, which was written very early on um, as well, thinking lyrically how that can be taken in a similar way, um, or something like There's a Place, which was very introspective. And I, I feel like he always wore his heart on his sleeve. People don't think it came around until you know, oh, now I heard Dylan, so now I could, you know, bring my work and my real writing that I save for, you know, things that are other than pop music. But I think he, I agree with you that he always had that tendency where McCartney might tell a story or, you know, in the very beginning, not always speak about himself. I think Lennon was always, you know, crying for help somewhat. And that that's right from the beginning. Yeah, and you listen to Live at the BBC when he sings, You Really Got a Hold on Me. What does he say at the end of the song? You really got a hold on me, mother. Yeah. You know, I mean, she never left him, that hole in his heart. For the rest of his career, he wailed at the microphones of the world for Julia Lennon. And he tells you on the White Album, you know, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. This is one of the early songs for Julia, highly autobiographical, Great rocker, but if you quit tapping your toes long enough, you'll hear the sadness. I love it. So here we go with Mr. Moonlight, and I'll cry instead. Thanks, Jude. Thank you. I loved it. Mr. Moonlight You came to me one summer night From your beam you made my dream And from the world you sent my girl And from above you sent us love And now she is mine I think you're fine Cause we love you Mr. Moonlight Mr. Moonlight Come again please Here I am on my knees Begging if you please And the night you don't come my way Day, Cause we love you Mr. Moonlight And the night that don't come my way Day, Cause we love you Mr. Moonlight Mr. Moonlight Come again please Here I am on my knees Begging if you please 
that you don't come my way Oh, I pray and pray more each day Cause we love you Mr. Moonlight Mr. Moonlight Mr. Moonlight Every reason on earth to be mad Cause I just lost the only girl I had If I could get my way I'd get myself locked up today But I can't, so I cry instead I got a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet I can't talk to people that I meet if I could see you now I'd try to make you sad somehow But I can't, so I'll cry instead Don't wanna cry when there's people there I get shy when they start to stare I'm gonna lock myself away, hey But I'll come back again someday And when I do, you better hide all the girls I'm gonna break their hearts all around the world Yes, I'm gonna break them in two I'll show you what your loving man can do Until then, I'll cry instead Don't wanna cry when there's people there I get shy when they start to stare I'm gonna hide myself away, hey But I'll come back again someday And when I do, you better hide all the girls Cause I'm gonna break their hearts all around the world Yes, I'm gonna break them in two And show you what your loving man can do Cause of that, I'll cry instead My next guest is Aaron Kadovich, and he's a renowned Beatles scholar and the author of six books on the group, including the harmonic analysis and structural analysis of the Beatles music, as well as Flipside Beatles Volume 1, The Beatles Band of the 60s, Star Time, A Celebration of Ringo, and The Beatles and the Avant-Garde. He spends much of his time traveling the U.S., Canada, and England to present one of his numerous presentations on the music of the Beatles. So thanks for coming, Aaron, and wanted to see what are the two songs that you chose and what is it about them that makes it cool to you? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It's certainly a thrill to be here. And um, I, I picked two songs, the title track of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Eleanor Rigby. And so a, a lot of what I do is rather analytic in nature. And so I chose two songs uh, where the analysis of this music can greatly enhance your understanding and appreciation of the music. And so I want to start with the title track, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And there are, um, there are several different sections. You know, it, it opens um, with that kind of ambient introduction, and then the song proper picks up with the first verse. Paul sings, it was 20 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. So that's the first verse. Then it goes into the first bridge, which in this case is uh, the the horn quartet uh, symbolizing uh, Sergeant Pepper and his band coming out on stage. The middle section is a chorus uh, where Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, we hope you will enjoy the show. Uh, then there's another uh, a bridge. This this time the the second bridge uh, does feature lyrics. Um, you know, you're such a lovely audience. We'd love to take you home. Uh, before the second verse. Uh, when they segue, uh, you know, may, um, um, uh, you know, uh, here's Billy Shears. He's going to sing with a little help from my friend. So the, the overall structure is verse, bridge, chorus, bridge, verse. And if you pay close attention, you'll notice that is palindromic. It is the same forwards as it is backwards. Verse, bridge, chorus, bridge, verse. No other Beatles song... Uh, well, there are other songs that are palindromic, like um, Don't Let Me Down. But uh, Sgt. Pepper is a palindromic arch uh, in the sense that it, it kind of builds up, uh, it builds one way and then builds down the other way. So if we gave alphabetic labels, it's an A, B, C, B, A. So a palindromic arch structure. And it's the only Beatles song to feature a palindromic arch structure. And so that made me that when I when I first discovered this several years ago, it started I started wondering why 
right? Why is this song structured so differently than every other song in the Beatles catalog? The reason is because it highlights the keystone of that arch, the chorus, where Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and uh, that that serves a narrative function. You know, the, the whole idea of Sgt. Pepper as an album is this fictitious uh, concert by this fictitious band, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And the first track is introducing that, and that first track is structured to highlight the arrival of the band. That keystone chorus is the point where where we, the, the listening audience, is introduced to Sgt. Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club band. And that's why it's the only Beatles song to be so structured. It's the only palindromic arch song in the Beatles' entire catalog because of that keystone, because it highlights Sgt. Pepper and his band. So that's the kind of thing that most people, including myself, the first 800 times I heard this song, <laughs> I had no idea that was even there. And and you know what? You don't need to know that it's there. You can appreciate this song fully without understanding that it's a palindromic arch structure, right? You don't need to know that to appreciate the music. But when you do notice it, when you do figure that kind of stuff out, it gives you an even more uh, profound appreciation uh, for for the Beatles' musical artistry and what they were able to accomplish as musicians. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, I found that, you know, the deeper you go in analyzing the Beatles' music, it, it becomes crazy how deep they could get being non-trained musicians that their instincts were so good that they're creating things that they don't even realize they're doing but as musicians and trained musicians as we are that you go into the theory of things and they took so much from what they heard as well and you think over the years you know a lot of people i don't think completely realize the fact that all of the Beatles grew up at a time when there was no rock and roll. So they were listening to music th whose structures and forms would at times be quite sophisticated, even for pop music. And I think they brought a lot of that into their own writing, whether subconsciously or, you know, I think mostly subconsciously. And the deeper you go into the Beatles canon, uh, the more you realize wow, it really was something special that they were able to put these things together that when you look at them in a theory perspective are so complex. And one of the questions I'm frequently asked is how conscious were the Beatles of all these these sophisticated designs and chords and progressions? You know, how conscious were they of what they were doing? And honestly, I don't know, but I imagine most of it is simply intuitive. They went with what sounded right. Now, in this case, you know, did they did they realize that that Sergeant Pepper is a palindromic arch? Uh, maybe George Martin certainly would have because he was musically trained, but right. none of the Beatles were. So it's it's a really good question. And if I ever get a chance to interview Paul, most of my questions are going to be how. How Aware conscious was this? Like, look at this really interesting thing that you did. Was that on purpose or was it just you doing your thing? And I, I suspect it's just them doing their thing. Right. But I think the thing that they were conscious of is once they did something, they would repeat themselves. I'm not saying repeat themselves. Their songs always sounded different. But when you look at certain song structures or certain chord progressions or melodic motifs that they knew certain things worked or certain things were different than what other people were doing and even though they changed drastically from album to album, you do find constants that, wow. That, and, and I think they might not have been thinking of it that way, but a particular chord progression or a turnaround that they loved would show up on the first album and on the last album because there was something to them that was cool about it. Yeah, for, for as diverse and as uh, rapidly as they progressed and developed as musicians, there are still... Uh, there are still fundamental um, patterns that unify their entire output from, you know, please, please me through Abbey Road. Definitely. Awesome. So the next song, Eleanor Rigby. What is it about Eleanor Rigby? One of my favorites. Uh, for, for very good reason. Um, so I'm going to try and play a few little things on my keyboard. Can you tell me, does this work? Oh, definitely. That's coming through? Okay, yep. excellent. So Rigby is another one where the way the song is structured is is integrally important uh, to uh, to the narrative 
of, of the song, of the music. And so Eleanor Rigby has uh, three verses. You know, the first verse, Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in a church where her wedding has been. So that's the first verse. The first verse is all about the title character, Eleanor Rigby herself. The second verse then uh, switches focus. Father Mackenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. So there's our second character. This, this verse is not about Rigby. It's about Father Mackenzie. Now, the third verse, this is where it gets interesting. The third verse brings them together. Uh, so Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. And then Father Mackenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. So the third verse brings these two lonely characters together. But of course, it's too late. This is what makes the song a tragedy. Uh, Mackenzie and Rigby only meet with the title character's death. So two people who could have been friends in real life only meet when one of them dies. That's why the song is so poignant and sad. Okay, so there's there's the lyrical structure. How is that paralleled musically? Well, with the music, we have several different, uh, or well, we have several different um, musical ideas or melodies. Uh, the the very first thing is what I call the chorus. Now, disclaimer: some people call this the bridge. At some point, it's just semantic differences. I'm going <laughs> to call this the chorus. So that, that little melody, ah, oh, look at all the lonely people, it permeates the entire song. And then there's another one that I'm going to call the refrain. Some people call this the chorus, again, semantic differences, uh, but it's this melody. So that part, all, all, the, all, the all the lonely people, where do they all belong? I'm not in the right key, but whatever. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yep. So, so we have these two different melodies, uh, the chorus um, and then the uh, refrain or um, whatever you want to call it. So just as the two characters, Eleanor Rigby and Father Mackenzie, come together lyrically in the third and final verse, so too that chorus and the refrain come together musically in the final verse. So uh, it's superimposed on top of each other, both of those melodies at the same time. And I'm afraid my piano skills are not good enough to be able to, be able <laughs> to play that. But I, I assume you're, you're going to play uh, a clip of this to, to illustrate. But what's really interesting uh, about this, this is what takes it to the next level for me, is the first uh, one, two times, I believe it is, the first two times we hear the chorus, there are two voices, the melody... And the harmony, a third below. So you put it together and you get two voices. Except for the very last time. When these two melodies are superimposed on each other, we only get the melody. We don't get melody and harmony, only the melody. Now, why is that significant? Because remember, in this third and final verse, Eleanor Rigby has died. And so it's like it's like she's not all there. The harmony is missing. She's still there. It's like her spirit is there. Her ghost is is still uh, is still around, but her physical body has died. And so this is another way how the structure of the song reflects the narrative of the song. Uh, of the song, this is I've I've heard people call Eleanor Rigby a miniature opera, and I would have to agree with that because this is a story, a dramatic story set to music, and the music tells the story, even independent of the lyrics, the way that uh, the way the chorus and the refrain melodies are combined at the very end uh, is like Rigby and Mackenzie coming together. But again, it's too late. Uh, we don't get the full melody and harmony. We only get the melody uh, of, of the chorus reflecting the fact that the title character has died. Well, that that's an amazing way to look at it because I've always felt that musically and lyrically that these two elements of this song worked so well together and the music illustrated this sadness that a lot of times even with a somber lyric like Eleanor Rigby if the music doesn't reflect that perfectly it it isn't as effective and I think one of the reasons this song has stood the test of time and is regarded as one of McCartney's masterpieces by many I I think it isn't just George Har George Harrison it isn't just George Martin's strings that were scored. 
it's the way the melody works. You could just solo the vocals and even without the strings behind it, still get that same feeling from you know the the lead vocal and the harmony and especially the way they are superimposed by the end yeah that's that's the cherry on top for me that's what takes us from a really good song to one of the best ever recorded i agree well here we go with sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band and eleanor rigby thanks aaron my pleasure in a jar by the door Who is it for all the lonely people Where do they all come from All the lonely people Where do they all belong Father Mackenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear No one comes near Look at him working Donning his socks in the night When there's nobody there What does he care All the lonely people Where do they all come from All the lonely people Where do they all belong Ah, look at all the lonely people Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name Nobody came, Father Mackenzie Wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave No one was saved, all the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? Our next guest wrote his first book on the Beatles 20 years ago, entitled The Beatles Records on VJ, and has been writing about the Fab Four ever since. 
His numerous books include The Beatles Story on Capitol Records, Part 1, The Singles, and Part 2, The Albums, The Beatles on Apple Records, The Beatles Are Coming, The Beatles Solo on Apple Records, The Beatles Swan Song, She Loves You and Other Records, Beatles for Sale on Parlophone Records, and The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective. He served as a consultant to EMI and Apple Records, wrote the 2,492 questions for a Beatles special edition of Trivial Pursuit, and has a new book, The Beatles' White Album and the Launch of Apple, which will debut at the White Album Symposium at Monmouth University in New Jersey. Welcome Beatles expert, Bruce Spicer. Hey, thanks for that introduction and glad to be here. Yeah, so we've been talking to a lot of different Beatles authors about two songs that really stand out for them in the Beatles canon. So what are the two that you picked, Bruce? I picked these two songs not because of necessarily the whole song, but just a nice little touch in them that really grabbed my attention when I first heard them and when I always noticed. First one is Things Were Said Today, which was in England the B-side to the Hard Day's Night single. But it actually was such a great song that EMI originally was going to market it as a double A-side. And if you get the Parlophone promo white label, you will notice there is a big red A on both the Hard Day's Night sign side and the things we said today side. The reason that they decided against making it a double A side was, of course, they wanted to promote the movie. And what I love about the song, you know, it's this great minor key acoustic song. And the second time when it comes off the bridge, you know, and you go into this line, love me all the time, girl. And then Paul sings this line, we'll go on and on. But it's double tracked with this harmony. And that harmony just jumped out the speaker the first time I heard it, you know, sort of like, I guess, if you were a dog and a dog whistle went off, your ear and head turned to try to see, did I just hear that? And it had that effect on me. And every time I hear the song, that line just jumps out at me. So a great song, but that line in particular is why I picked that item. And I've always loved the way the song goes back and forth from the really melancholy A section that's minor and then kicks into high gear uh, for the B section. And uh, they especially accented that whenever they played it live. And you would hear Paul whoop it up and the beat would kick in. And it just really showed that there was something special about this song to them at the time, even though it didn't end up being the double A side. Some of those live performances are fantastic. Oh, absolutely. You know, he gets said, yeah, you know, and yeah. you could tell how much, uh, you know, he and the band enjoy the song. Great song. And, uh, you know, kind of overlooked a little bit in the Beatles canon, particularly in the U.S. But uh, one of my probably, you know, I would put that in uh, my top 20, maybe favorite Beatles songs. Yeah, one of my favorites as well. So what was the second song you chose? Once again, not so much a song, but a little bit of a touch in the song. Dear Prudence. Absolutely love the song, but what grabs my attention in it is toward the end of the song when Paul plays this rippling piano effect, and that just kind of jumps out of the speakers. And once again, the very first time I heard the song, when that piano appeared, it, you know, kind of once again, kind of, wow, where did that come from? So just that effect, and that's the thing I love about the Beatles' music so often, just nice little touches that you normally didn't find on recordings by other groups, you know, that are just thrown in there that make a, a great song even more special. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that made them stand out. Like you've mentioned, their attention to detail, that they would take the time to add a little something, whether it was, you know, a, an atypical chord change or you know, a, a harmony that comes in that you don't expect or a piano part, like at the end of Dear Prudence. And yeah. I, all of the Beatles were capable of adding those little special touches. But I think even a lot of times um, McCartney would take the lead because he was such a great multi-instrumentalist. And, you know, he, out of anybody in the Beatles, he was the one that could walk into a studio by himself and walk out with a finished record. And Dear Prudence is a great example of him covering drums, bass, adding this piano part, great vocal harmonies. Um, I think that something I love about McCartney in The Beatles is that he always wanted to add 
everything he could, especially to other people's songs, like George and John's songs. And I know John has complained about it in the past that at times he felt like he was trying to sabotage his songs. But I always feel like McCartney always wanted to add that special something to songs that he didn't write. And I know that he even mentioned as a bass player, he would often focus more on his bass playing when it wasn't his song because he wasn't the writer, he wasn't the lead vocalist. And these little touches by McCartney and everybody else in the group, I, I really think makes songs extra special where they could turn a song that another group might just put in a blasé performance and take a song that might not be, you know, the best song that the Beatles ever did and turn it into an amazing recording. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, when people listen to the uh, deluxe edition of the White Album, when you listen to some of the outtakes and things, and, you know, you're going to say, gee, maybe there was tension, but you don't hear it in, when that red light went on in the studio and the nice little touches and the way all the Beatles were talking about each other's songs and things becomes uh, very evident. So, uh, you know, once again, as you point out, it wasn't just the case of, you know, making their own songs great, but trying to make the songs by the other members of the band great as well. Right, and that's why I think, you know, you have solo Beatles material, and then you have Beatles material. And no matter how much you love the solo material, there was something special when, you know, the four of them were together, or three of them, or, but there was just something really special about the Beatles as an entity. Absolutely, no doubt about it. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, we could go probably through every song in the Beatles catalog, and you and I could come up with one little touch in it. Oh, definitely. You know, a hand clap here, a cowbell there, a shaker there, just little things uh, that make the song so special. And as you say, that attention to detail. Yep. Well, here we go with Things We Said Today and Dear Prudence. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be here. You say you will love me If I have to go You'll be thinking of me Somehow I will know Someday when I'm lonely Wishing you weren't so far away Then I will remember Things we said today you say you'll be mine, girl, till the end of time. These days such a kind girl seems so hard to find. Someday when we're dreaming, deep in love, not a lot to say, then we will remember things we said today. said today me I'm just the lucky kind love to hear you say that love is love and though we may be blind love is here to stay and that's enough to make you mine girl be the only one love me all the time girl we'll go on and on Someday when we're dreaming Deep in love, not a lot to say Then we will remember Things we said today
Well, it wouldn't be a Beatles multi-track meltdown if I didn't get to pick a song. Last week, I chose a number of 67 songs and one from early 68 that highlight Starr's drumming and his pre-hip-hop sensibility. I'm going to stick with that theme tonight and play George Harrison's Blue Jay Way. Not only are Starr's drums phenomenal, but the overdubbed cellos, as well as the backwards vocals, turn it into an underrated psychedelic masterpiece. Well, that's it for this time, Beatles fans. I hope you enjoyed part two of the Beatles Multitrack Meltdown's 100th episode celebration. Tune in next time for part three to hear other Beatles authors' picks. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, All That's Left to Know About This Elusive Band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, solo cuts, live tracks, and much, much more. You can pick up the books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of your favorite booksellers. And you can pick up my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics, at anthonyrobostelli.com, CD Baby, iTunes, or you can stream it on Spotify or any of your favorite providers. 
You can also stream past shows on Podbean and iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the Facebook page for I Want to Tell You and the Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time.